Our scripture reading is from Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 14. You'll find this on page 601 of your, of your pew Bibles. That's Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 14. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. This is God's word. I do keep your Bibles open at Isaiah 41 this morning. We are used to elements from the world around intruding into our, into our daily lives and giving us all kinds of reasons for fears and concerns. I remember a friend of mine in London, he, he's a professor of mathematics at one of the great universities there, Imperial College, and from time to time he would take me to hear a visiting lecturer who was uh, coming to uh, teach at the university. And on one occasion, we went to the Grantham Institute for Climate Change, which is associated with, the, with Imperial College in London. The lecturer was a world expert on issues of climate change. He and his colleagues advised various governments and industries of the potentialities of the negative effects of climate change and so on. And uh, you know what, how it works. You, you choose the scientist, whoever pays the money, chooses the scientist and the science. But anyway, he, he, that evening was telling a very disturbing story about how bad things were, how much action needed to be taken, uh, that some damage was irreversible. He joked that, in fact, if we didn't do anything, we might as well have a great global party and then all commit mass suicide at the end of it. He went on to say that he would not want to be around in 200 years' time because such were the variables that anything could happen between now and then, including the loss of London and the loss of the entire eastern seaboard of the United States of America. Not to make you worry. Uh, you have another couple of hundred years before that happens, apparently. But isn't it one of the realities of life that no matter where, where you live or at what point in the in the period of history you might live, there are always reasons for being afraid, whether it's climate change or terrorism, fear of failure, fear of the future, fear of taking risks, fear of fear itself. 
the fear of the past catching up on you, fear of the future, being afraid of weaknesses, being exposed, afraid for your financial security, afraid for your health, afraid of death. Often the media plays on our fears by telling us all kinds of horror stories of what's going to happen or what may happen, what the variables may be. And so our fears increase and the more sensitive of us live in a nightmare of anxiety over all of these things. I smile, but it's not laughable to those who are experiencing it. Now, there's no doubt that when you look at this section of Isaiah, the main theme is the theme of fear. If you look at verse 10, God says to His people, fear not and don't be dismayed. Again in verse 13, fear not, I'm the one who helps you. Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob. And each of those fear nots underlines this, God's people God's people are not to be gripped or crippled by fear. God's people are not to be crippled by fear. They should not be gripped by an anxious, fretless, joyless, worried, fearful preoccupation with the things that threaten your present happiness or health. That's what it means to fear not. Whether you're looking at the great geopolitical movements of the day or whether you're looking at the micro-movements of your own life, how are we to live to the glory of God in the world? Well, here's one of the answers. We are to live without fear. We are to pass our time here without fear, the New Testament says. Well, that's an amazing thing. So how do I address fear in my life? How does the world address it? Well, one way, I suppose, is to get up every morning and recite these verses to yourself. That's a kind of a, a mantra. Uh, if you do that, put yourself in the locust position, if you can do it, uh, which eliminates most of us, I suppose, and, and repeat the verses. Well, that wouldn't really be any more than a self-help therapy session, wouldn't it? Uh, faith would be no more than positive thinking or possibility thinking. And it would be no different from the reaction of many of my neighbors who don't even know God. Or, secondly, I could do so, deal with fear by dismissing fear, by giving myself a lecture to myself. Why should somebody as bright and beautiful as you, obviously not me, you're saying this to yourself, uh, why should I be afraid of anything? Why should I be afraid of anything in the world? I mean, really, seriously. If only I believed in myself more, if only I was more confident of my making my way in the world, then I would have no anxieties or fears whatsoever. Or, or we could simply go into denial. We could pretend, couldn't we, that there are no threats. No threats to our personal well-being, no threats to the world, no problems at all. Well, we could do any of those things, but what should a Christian do? <clears throat> And I want to answer that question from this passage by pointing out a very obvious thing here, that those words that you read three times in the passage, fear not, don't be afraid, are words that appear again and again in the Bible. The angels say them a lot when they come, when they come to appear to people, when an angel comes to Mary or to Joseph or to Zechariah, it seems the first thing they say is, don't be afraid, because apparently Angels are very scary creatures. But I want you to notice every time, 
Even when the Lord Jesus appears in his resurrection body to his people, he says to them, fear not. Every time it is a command to be obeyed. It is an instruction to be carried through. He's not just saying, they're there now. It will be okay. He is telling you. He is commanding you. He is instructing you. If you are a believer this morning, he is saying to you, fear not. Now, how is this explicated in the passage before us? Well, as the passage flows, I want you to notice it begins with people who are afraid of the wrong things. They're afraid of the wrong things. That, the whole opening seven verses, we didn't read them. This opening seven verses is a, are a description of the world. That is the nations of the world, the peoples of the world, the peoples outside of God's people. So we're thinking from a Christian perspective of society, the culture, the, most of the people that we rub shoulders with uh, from day to day in our everyday lives. And it describes these people as being people who were afraid. They were terrified at one level. They were gripped by fear because, verse 2, a new unforeseen strange power was going to burst upon the world stage. It's unnamed here because it's way into the future from where the perspective of which Isaiah is speaking, this world power. It's most likely the power of Persia. And uh, what Isaiah is doing is he's looking at two world powers into the future. He is writing at the period where the Assyrians are in power, then the Babylonians are going to be in power, and then from the east, the Persians will be in power. He's thinking ahead. But at this point, he's leaving it vague because he's dealing with the principle. Here are the people of the world, and they are afraid because there is a new power emerging unexpected, and they feel as if they are under threat. They are being threatened by this emerging power because the world is always afraid of something it, that it's unfamiliar with. It is always afraid. And uh, God speaks to remind them in those first seven verses to remind them and us that He is sovereign, that He's in charge of history that he actually writes the script of history, and uh, that Isaiah has had this great God-honoring, faith-building responsibility to demonstrate to Israel and to the nations that God is the only creator of the world. But in these first seven verses, we learn another thing about God. God is the judge of all the earth. Verse 1 is really a call by God to the nations outside of his own people to assemble before him. He calls them. They're, they're all worried about this new power block that might emerge in the future. And he calls on them. He brings them to himself. He calls the coastlands, which was a kind of technical term for all the Gentile nations in the distant remote parts of the world to the thinking of the person in the Middle East. They're, they're called the peoples, just to underscore, it's, it's the generality of the world around outside of Israel that's being called. He calls them to appear before him in court. 
He is summoning them to appear before him as their judge. He uses a word in verse 1. Let the peoples renew their strength. There's a contrast there. In chapter 40, God said to his own people, wait upon the Lord and you will renew your strength. Those that wait upon the Lord renew their strength. They don't, they don't renew the strength in their own ability and capacity, but rather as they wait upon the Lord, their strength is renewed. God does it to them. He renews their strength. But as God addresses the nations, He says to the nations, okay, you don't fit God into your mind. You don't fit God into your agenda. So strengthen yourself. Go on, strengthen yourself. Get yourself ready to come and appear before me. Are you strong enough? Do you feel confident enough? Are you bold enough to come into my presence and give an account, says God. And God challenges them. He talks in verse 2 about this power that's going to emerge from the east, and He reminds them that it's He who raises up kings and powers in the world. Now, these kings and powers may be actual power blocks. They may be actual nations. They may be ideas. They may be philosophies. They might be new teaching, whatever it may be. But these things have belonged to the world. They come at God's command. God writes the story. He writes people into the story, and He writes them out of the story because God is in charge of history. And there will always be wars and rumors of wars as the people of the world assert their rights and seek their power. But God is the one who raises and topples the empires of the world. Look at verse 4, who has performed and does this, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. Here God is putting the nations on notice, putting the world on notice, the world system all around us on notice. Who created this stuff? Who calls generations from the beginning? God is the first. He is the absolute reality before all other realities. He is the absolute reality who creates all other realities. He is before everything. He is the uncreated first thing. And He will be there at the last. He will sum everything up in His purposes. He is bringing everything to a conclusion. I am God who is the first and God who is the last. He brackets everything in history by His power. He underlines who He is. He is the one who introduced Himself to Moses. I am He. This is Yahweh, Jehovah. It is the covenant-keeping, steadfast, loving God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And more than this, the one who is speaking these words is particularly the second person of the Holy Trinity. In Revelation 22, verse 13, it is the Lord Jesus who says, I am Alpha and Omega, A and Z, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. I am He, says Jesus. This is the Lord Jesus. And I want you to notice that the Lord antedates all history. He is independent of history. 
He is over history. He is above history. He is after history. And this Lord cannot be captured or tamed or controlled. He is the author and finisher of the story that we call history. He's outside the system. He creates the system. And He has ordered the system according to His own plans and purposes and His own drawings, His own architectural drawings. And He has plotted out its timeline, when it would begin and when it will end. This is the God with whom the nations have to do. And when the world is confronted by changes and new movements and new ideas and convulsions, what does the world do? Well, if you look at verse 6, you'll find what the world does. We're told that they turn to one another. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. They, they kind of resort to a kind of general heartiness, kind of patting on the back, a kind of, kind of moral resolve. Let's encourage one another. Let's all get together and have a party. Let's have a band playing. Let's have a great concert. Let's everybody be amalgamated together, and we can make ourselves feel good about this. Let's go to Times Square and have a, a great party there so that we really feel good about the fact that we're another year older and another year further on towards dying. I mean, that's great, isn't it? Let's celebrate that movement of time. And this is the idea. The world says every man to his neighbor, propping each other up, as it were, in the story of history. Be strong. All sounds very positive, very helpful. And you see it's the power of positive thinking. It's a rejection of negative thinking. It's a, a case of people trying to, to keep up the morale. And if that doesn't work, they have another thing up their sleeve, verse 7. They turn to each other, they turn to idols. And they do the same thing. I want you to notice the use of that word strengthen. We noted it in chapter 40 where God renews our strength. That's what His promise is to the believer. But here, when He's talking to the world, apparently, that all they can do is try and strengthen each other. And so they turn to idolatry. You notice verse 7, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with a hammering and him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. It's a kind of parody of Genesis 1 when God made the heavens and the earth and He said, it is good. Here is the idolater who makes a little idol and he says about it, it is good. And then what do they have to do? They have to take the idol and put it somewhere and they strengthen it. There's the word again. They strengthen their idol with nails so that it cannot be moved. So much effort the world puts in to preserving its peace of mind. So much effort people put in to find some alternative explanation of reality that omits the explanation of reality you find in the Bible. You see, ultimately and in many ways, this is what idolatry is. People see an effect and they speculate as to what the cause of the effect is. They ascribe what they see, the effect, to a cause of their own imagination and speculation apart from divine revelation. This is the reality. 
I mean, what are, we, we live in a secular society. What is the driving philosophical alternative explanation of reality as we know it in our society today? It is atheistic, evolutionary theory. We explain the universe with God excluded altogether. Some, of course, try to cobble God into the story. Theistic evolution is a form of syncretism that tries to marry this pagan explanation of reality with a God explanation of reality. But in the end, syncretism doesn't get you any further forward. There is still idolatry involved. And in this passage, do you notice that the efforts of the world to strengthen itself are completely dismissed I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid, and the ends of the earth tremble at what they see happening. But I am the Lord, and I remain unmoved, unchanged, so much easier to believe in God than the effort it takes to find the alternative. Our confession puts out like this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's what Isaiah is teaching here. So there are people who are afraid of the wrong things. They should be afraid of God. Not what's going on in the world, not climate change, of God. But then secondly, there are people who know better than to be afraid. And these are the people of God. And you can see that from verse 8. We read these together. He's talking to Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Now, the, the coalition of those words there, Abraham through Jacob, is an underlining of the fact that God has his own people in the world. He's addressing them as those who are a bit disappointed and embittered. We saw this in chapter 40, verse 27. These are people who know God, but they're saying to themselves, my way is hidden from God, and my right is disregarded by my God. And here is God who's listening to your complaints. God is hearing your, your, your moaning and complaining and your frustration when you think God doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know how I'm feeling. He doesn't know why I'm feeling disenchanted with Him and with the things of God. He hears that. Here's His answer. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do you see how He assures them of His commitment? He assures them of His commitment to them by underlining His choice of them. That's absolutely vital. He's calling them back to the revelation of God's eternal sovereignty and care, both as the creator of the universe and as the redeemer of His people. Look at the words, the key words, my servant, my chosen, my friend, taken, called, not cast off. That's covenantal language. That's the language of a super king who has taken over a number of small little states and uh, has, has subject kings answerable to him. Israel was a little vassal state, and God was the super king over all the world. 
And the super king makes promises to the little king. Emdi that attacks you, attacks me. Emdi that hurts you, hurts me. Emdi comes against you, I'll be coming against them. Here is God, the great king, who has entered into covenant with his church, with his people. And he's working with Israel, you notice, as his servant. They're his servants because connected to them is the servant with the uppercase, capital S, the servant who is the Messiah. God is dealing with His people as His servants because they are connected to King Jesus, the Messiah, and He's chosen them in Him. Not only are they His servants, but they're His friends. And, and here the word friend is used in the sense of a covenant partner. That's the way it was used of Abraham when God called Abraham to Himself. And, and you notice the movement. God calls Abraham, and as the Apostle Paul shows us, God's purposes work through Abraham. They work through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau, because God's grace is God's choice. And that's the way it always is in the Bible. You remember the Lord Jesus? We wanted to reassure His people on the night of His arrest and trial leading up to His crucifixion. What did He say to them? I have called you friends, that is, covenant partners, not pals, but friends in that sense. I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. How does Jesus call you as a congregation His friend this morning? By giving you His Word and by teaching His Word to you, telling His Word to you. He is saying to you, I've let you in on my secrets. You know what people out there don't know. You're beginning to understand from Scripture what the world is blind to and cannot see. You're my friends. You're my covenant partners. I'm sharing my Word with you this morning. And he goes on to say this to them. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And those whom God chooses, He calls. Again, look at the words, I took, I called, saying, God took them from the ends of the earth. They were laid hold of by God. They were called effectually to Him. They're designated as servants. And He says to them, verse 9, I've chosen you and not cast you off. So He's chosen you. Secondly, He will keep you. Look at verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. You see, God's choice of us blows our fear away, but here's more, here's more, backing it, this great thing. Here's the divine presence. I am with you, says God. The Lord Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age. The Holy Spirit comes to us from the Father and the Son to dwell within us. The Spirit of grace, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon His people, and the Spirit's presence in your life means the very presence of Almighty God with you as individual people and as a congregation. God is with you. Here's the commitment of God. Not only am I present with you, but I am your God. How can you be dismayed? I am your God. I am not simply a God or the God. I am your God. 
there's a possession here. I possess you and you possess me. There is a unity of possession going on here. God's people possess God as their own God all the time. It is to them that God says, I will strengthen you. You don't need to strengthen yourself. You don't need to be up to one another and saying, well, you know, let's, let's kind of try and get a positive attitude going here. Let's try and talk ourselves into a good mood so that we leave here this morning feeling really high and exalted. I can do that for you. We'll just put more coffee in the room behind here and you can get that before you leave and you'll all leave very, very happy in this whiskey for, for those of you who don't want the coffee. And that will make you all feel great as you leave. But that's not what he's talking about here. God says to them, I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. And with each of those words, each of those words in the Hebrew is prefaced by a particle that heaps them one on top of the other like this. It sounds like this. Yes, I will strengthen you. And yes, I will help you. And yes, I will uphold you. Whatever you need. It's all built on the changeless character of God, do you see? You know, the Lord Jesus picks up this very language in John chapter 10 when he's talking about himself as the good shepherd who will lay down his life for his people. And he reassures his people in these words that he gives them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of his hand. And if that's not enough, he goes on. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here he has two hands, if you will, to use human language of a divine reaction. Here is the hand of the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Father, and his people are in their hand. And goes, Jesus goes on to explain, I and the Father are one. And that's where his people are, embraced in his hand, and nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where you are this morning if you're one of His children. And the implication of that is that He will defend His own. Now, when we come to verses 11 to 13, this is actually the heart of this chapter. All the scholars agree this is the heart of the chapter. Because in this, we have a statement that is so kind of basic, a definition and a description of the relationship between God's people and the enemies of God's people, and it applies right across the board in all of history, and it is an amazing breakdown. It's kind of breaking down the elements of how enmity to God and God's people works, and I want you to notice the flaw of it. Look at verses 11, 12, 13. The first line, those who are incensed against you. Third line, who strive against you. Verse 12, first line, contend with you. Third line of verse 12, war against you. Now, you break those, those things down. I want you to notice these very carefully. First of all, there's emotion. There's the emotion of the world, and it's rage. They are incensed against you. Then there's litigation by the world. That word to strive means literally, Al Matthias says, 
means literally in the Hebrew, the men of your lawsuit, they are litigating against you, bringing charges against you. They have a case against you, litigation. Then three, there is opposition. That's that word, contend with you. It's the idea of getting others on board, amalgamating, stirring up strife and hostility towards you. And then fourthly, there is that expression, they war against you. Now you can see how this, this pattern, this outline, appears in various places in the Bible. It appears in Psalm 2, for example, where the nations rage against the Lord and against the Lord's Messiah. They are incensed against the Lord and against His Messiah. They have a, a position. They have, a, they, have a, a, they have something against God. They have a case against God. And their case against God is this, that He has put bonds on them and cords around them, like God has put people in chains. That's their argument. That's their case against God. And they're bringing this case. And they're bringing this case together. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers, take counsel together against the Lord. And the word against the Lord and against His anointed indicates that they go to war with God. All of those elements are present there. You find the same elements present in Revelation chapter 12. There you find Satan becoming furious at the birth of the Messiah and at the fate of the woman who is, represents the church, the picture of the church in Revelation. He is furious against God's church. He's raging, incensed against God's church. And what does he do then? He brings accusations against her. He brings, as it were, a lawsuit against the church. He brings charges. He is in Revelation 12, verse 10, the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing people around us, accusing the church to people around us. He's bringing these charges against God's people. He's arguing that they are not what they should be or that they're doing this or that or the other thing. And he brings charges against the people of God. He organizes opposition. We find there in Revelation chapter 12 that he organizes whole hosts of people to bring their enmity against the church of God. And then in Revelation 12 verse 17, he makes war. He makes war against people. Who are these people? Revelation 12 17 tells us. He makes war against those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, do you see, we have a pattern here. This pattern recurs again and again in history. It, it appears, for example, today when people are raging against Christian morality. Uh, you see people on television, and they want to appear very together, very sober, very scholarly-like, very clever and calm, confident. And a question will arise, or someone will say something, and you see a chink in the armor. You see seething rage in their hearts. Not against any God, but against the God of the Bible. It's there all around us. 
starts with rage. It moves to litigation and stirring up trouble and eventually total war. Today, I think we see this, don't we? In the outbursts of annoyance and frustration over the views and values of God's church. As, as there are movements in society that want to make us appear vindictive and oppressive and intolerant. They set up and then they knock down straw men. While as they do that, they're turning society with its values and even our laws on their head in order to turn us into pariahs in the eyes of the world. It's going on in our day. This is how Jesus was treated. The Pharisees, we read in the Gospels, were incensed. They were enraged about Him and His claims. They brought Him to court. They got false witnesses to bear false witness against Him. It was an ungodly trial. It was an illegal trial, in fact. They stirred up the crowds, do you remember, to cry, crucify Him. And they made war against Him by taking His life on the cross. But they did not end Jesus. And they cannot end the church. Do you notice? Notice the flow here. Those who are enraged against you, what will happen to them? They shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who litigate against you as the church of Christ shall be as nothing and shall perish. Those who stir up opposition against you in the world, what will happen to them? They will disappear. You shall not find them. And those who war against you, they will be non-entities. They will be as nothing and perish. Beloved, you see, the church has always had to face enmity of one kind or another. And we're not to be paranoid about the enmity, do you see? That's why God has perfectly balanced His description of the ways the world organizes itself against God's church and the confidence we have as God's people. That's up front and central to this whole passage. You're Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, I took, I called. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you. Remember that. Remember that in the end, the enemies can do no ultimate damage to the church of Christ. He sums it up in verse 15. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. Do you like being called a worm? There are people who don't like worm theology, they call it. Well, it's in the Bible, whether they like it or not. They've taken it out of our hymns, actually. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Those are the original words, and not the version we have. For sinners such as I, sounds bad, but it's not as bad as a worm. In Psalm 22, the psalm that was on Jesus' mind as He was on the cross, the writer who is pinned by His hands and feet says this, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, 
and despised by the people. God says, fear not, you worm, Jacob. You feel as if, you feel like that. You feel as if you're small and insignificant. That's why we wanted to retain the word here, because there are times I know in your life when you feel small and insignificant and worthless and futile and meaningless, and your life seems like that. And when you think of yourself before a holy God, you're going to feel like that sometimes. What a slug I am. What a worm I am. What a nothing I am. I'm glad this word is in the Bible for you this morning. God says, you feel like a worm, Jacob. I'm going to make something of worms. I'm going to make princes out of worms. You see the parallel there in the poetry form. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, princes with God. That's what God does with worms. You don't have to tell yourself you're better than you are. You don't have to nurse your ego back to health. You just need to listen to God telling you His Word into your heart. He's your Redeemer, you notice. He pins it all on that. Oh, you know, that word Redeemer is such a precious word. It means that when you've got debts, He pays them. When you're in slavery, He pays the ransom to release you. When you're in prison, He pays what it takes to get you out. When you're poor, He provides for you. When you've lost your inheritance, He shares His inheritance with you. When you're oppressed, He acts against the oppressor. That's God. That's your God. He is for you. And He's strong enough, committed enough, passionate enough, powerful enough to do over and abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. This morning, locked as we are into the now of time, we need to hear the voice of the one who is outside of time speak into our contracted little world and say to us, I am He. I am your God. Let Him lift you up. Let Him make you strong in Himself to the praise of His glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come conscious that the world is not afraid enough because it doesn't factor you into its imagination. It's not afraid enough. It has something bigger to be afraid of than it realizes. We pray that you'd open people's eyes to that, that they would come to you and cry to you for salvation and mercy. And we as your people, we have no need to be afraid because God is for us. We pray that you would please galvanize our own minds and hearts, whatever is assaulting us or assailing us, whatever questions are bombarding us, whatever charges the devil as our accuser makes against us day by day. May we find our confidence in Christ alone. In His strong name we pray. Amen.